Many years ago, when the planet Krypton, home of a race of supermen, exploded in space, the sole survivor was an infant boy who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's now playing Superman Movie Retrospective Series! Man, this is gonna be good! Hosted by Stuart. I don't know. From the look of them, I'll bet $10 they're from Los Angeles. Arnie! I win! I won't win. Is there no one on this planet to even challenge me? And Jacob. Someone with the same wonderful contempt for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And these three new arrivals bring destruction in their way. These people have such powers, nothing can stop them. Now that you know, I think you should know it all. Tell me everything, starting with crystals. Can you read my mind? If so, you already know this podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Holy skokeswit! Listener discretion is advised. Bring it on! There are questions to be asked. And it is time for you to do so. Here in this, this fortress of solitude, we shall try to find the answers together. Today we're discussing Superman 2, starring Gene Hackman, Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, Ned Beatty, Jackie Cooper, Terrence Stamp, and directed by Richard Lester, or directed by Richard Donner. We'll get into both of them. Yes, and I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and a nice man. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob, your host of Steel. And this is the movie that is so nice we almost reviewed it twice. That was the plan anyway, and then, I don't know, you guys saw it. Uh, but <laughs> we always were planning on doing it as two separate shows. We've done that before. Freddy versus Jason, we have recorded two different reviews of that because we were doing one for the Nightmare on Elm Street and one for the Friday the 13th. I think the thinking was that the two different cuts would be entirely different movie experiences. I, to this day, have never seen the Richard Donner-approved cut. I'm well aware of it. I actually attended Comic-Con and saw a panel with him and Brian Singer there to talk about it. I would like to see it one day, but I chose to remain faithful to the version of the movie I knew. I have only seen this Richard Lester version, and I have watched it since uh, theaters back in 1980 and have always loved this movie. Never thought it needed a different cut. And for this review, I will remain Completely ignorant of what Richard Donner has done. I'll depend on you guys, I think, to fill in the gaps. Yeah, I watched both cuts for this review. I had seen both cuts previously. You know, again, Superman and then Superman 2, a film I grew up with. Felt like I almost didn't need to watch this. I could tell you scene for scene what was going to happen. I'm so familiar with it. But the Richard Donner cut, I had only seen once before. And it was really out of context because they played it on TV. I had no idea that... One was supposed to have changes, so I'm like, oh, he's spinning the world around twice, and, you know, we'll get into it, but watching it this time, I, I finally understood the context, how it would fit in with Superman 1 if Donner would have stuck around. For me, I hadn't seen the Donner cut. I picked it up when I got the Blu-ray set, but 
I had held off watching it. I'd been very interested. I actually bought it twice, once before the Blu-ray set. It was really cheap, and I bought it, never got a chance to watch it. Then I got it with the Blu-ray set, still never got a chance to watch it. But everything I'd heard online, it was a totally different film. The site I go to that helps me pick apart the differences between rated and unrated versions had a huge paragraph at the beginning. It is so hard to compare these two. It's like two different films. And so... When we were discussing this, it's like, well, if it's two different films, if it's that different, then we should do its own show. But after seeing it, I think it very much falls into the category of, like, Blade Runner or so many of these other films that have gotten director's cuts and regular cuts, the Hannibal films that we talked about, the various cuts on Manhunter. The story is the same. My plot summary that I do later is a plot summary that encompasses both versions. There are different details, there are some major differences, some minor differences, and I'll detail them for you, Stuart, as we go through. I'll give my verdict, Jacob, you can give your verdict, as to which is the better one. But I agree, I didn't necessarily see a need for improvement of this film, because I also grew up with it. My memory coming into this retrospective is it is the best Superman film. It's almost like The Godfather 2 for my generation. When you talk about sequels better than the original, you may argue Alien vs. Aliens, you may even argue Star Wars vs. Empire, but nobody argues Superman vs. Superman 2, because Superman 2 just wins. I was not aware of that, so I'm looking forward to having that debate. <laughs> but people will argue between Godfather and Godfather 2. You keep bringing up Godfather 2. It's not better! Damn it, we'll do that show one day. It's not better. That is its reputation, though. I know, it's wrong. <laughs> and I'm going to say that the reputation for Superman 2, we will get into it. But in my research as the multimedia comic book fan, I found that growing up, yeah, Superman 2 was hands down the winner. If you look at the vast masses on the internet or just the box office grosses, Superman 1 seems to have withstood the test of time more than its sequel. We'll see if we agree. Yeah, I can tell you as a kid, definitely I was always game for watching Superman 2, even though I had problems with Superman 1. This was the action one. This is the one with supervillains. This is the one with Zod. I mean, come on. There is a lot to appeal to the child, and hopefully the child still within me. I'm hoping as I return, and I have not seen this movie probably since the 80s, I'm going to keep that feeling alive that, yeah, this is probably the best we're going to get in this whole series. The con episode, if you will. And that was a comparative that Brian Singer made, actually, is that when he planned to make his sequel to Superman Returns, he wanted it to emulate Superman 2 or Wrath of Khan and really bring that action kapow. But I guess the real fireworks were happening behind the scenes. What can you tell me about what went wrong on this set? And how much of this movie was already done when they filmed that first Superman? It seems like they always had it in the plan. I mean, that first scene in that first Superman movie where these three Kryptonian criminals being sent to the Phantom Zone, they knew they were going to do this. So how much of that was already done when Donner was booted? As I mentioned last time, they were trying to film the two back-to-back -to, -back to save money. Superman 1 went over budget, behind schedule. Its release was actually delayed till Christmas. It was supposed to be a summer movie. And during production, they pulled the plug and said, let's just focus on making the first one, and then if it's a success, we'll come back on the second one. But everything I've read said that almost 75% of Superman 2 was in the can. It just had a little bit more finishing. Everything with Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman 
was completely shot by Donner because those two had other jobs and very strict contracts that they weren't going to return after their final date. And so even when they knew they weren't going to finish two, they're like, but finish Hackman. We got to finish Hackman. We'll never get Hackman back. So if Gene Hackman's in the scene or, well, Marla Brando, they ended up cutting entirely from the theatrical cut. But all of that was Donner. So much of it was Donner. But then they got this Richard Lester. Now, Richard Lester, here's a funny story. Richard Lester was involved in the first Superman movie. You see, these producers, the Salkins, I don't know the people. I only know what is alleged in numerous court cases that they don't pay what they owe. (laughs) (laughs) And thus they would fit right in here with Hollywood. I don't think that makes them unique as producers. Producers, by definition, the species is cheap, thrifty. It's what they do. How can we do this and not pay people? How can we do this and cheat and get the most money? It's just it's the name of the game. But it does sound like they built up a huge well of resentment with some of their major players here. And that's a big no-no. You always want to make the people that helped you get there happy. Well, Richard Lester was the director of their Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers duology. And he was suing them because they didn't pay him what they owed him for Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers. We're going to return to this lawsuit type thing later. Well, things were going poorly on Superman. Donner had stopped speaking to Pierre Spangler, who was the producer, and the Salkins, who were the executive producers. And so they told Lester, hey, you know that money we owe you? We're going to pay you now, but only if you come in and mediate the differences between Donner and us. And so to get the money, which he was already owed, Lester came on for another job and was the go-between between Donner and the Salkins. And after Superman 1 came out, Donner went public and in interviews said, you could have me or you could have Pierre Spangler, but I'm never working with that guy again. And the Salkins went with the money man, Pierre Spangler, and went bye-bye Donner and Lester had already been on the set. Wow. Now here's the other thing. He refilmed the majority of this movie. You have to have filmed 51% of the film in order to be credited as the director of a movie. That's why you get a director versus a second unit director. Your second unit director can't do 49.1%. And so even though, had it been Donner, they could have probably done it a bit cheaper. They had Lester come in and refilm a lot and change a lot. I mentioned Brando is cut. Well, Brando was suing them for not paying him the money they owed him. (laughs) Admittedly, he was asking for all the money in the entire world. But yes, I can see that that might put you on the editing room floor. And what even Pierre said in his commentary for Superman 2 is, we realized Superman 1 was such a big hit, we didn't need Brando anymore, so why give him money? They're right about that. Nobody now, I think, goes to Superman thinking about Brando. I mean, he was a big star in the 70s and will remain forever a movie icon but come on it could have been anybody in that black superman outfit in the beginning i mean it's 10 minutes we're there to see the guy in the cape christopher reeve that would have been a problem i do gotta ask obviously christopher reeve got a little bit of success out of superman he made somewhere in time was he happy was he a team player at this point in the project did he want to be there that's a really hard thing to say because he didn't really do a whole lot of commentaries for these box sets. Everything I read was people talking about him or stuff that was said in the time. Right. He had probably already passed when they had made these recordings. Yeah. And recently at that. So nobody was going to speak ill of him. I get the impression that he and Kidder were 
still on the upswing at this point. I'm curious as we get to parts three and four, what my impression of Reeves' participation will be. But here, especially given the fact that a majority of this was filmed before he was anybody and during the first movie, I get the impression this was part and parcel of that first film. But yet these scenes were filmed and quite visibly three years apart. Mm. But yeah, we'll talk about it. I'm certainly got some notes on it, even without commentary. Watching this with an adult's eyes, you can tell certain scenes in this movie don't look the same as different angles in the same scene. And yeah, even Hackman, Hackman wouldn't come back for ADR. Some people have said that it was a revolt. Some people said that they sided with Donner. Other people say they had contracts that said this is what they do and they did what their contract said and they weren't going to come back no matter who was doing it. But they got a body double to film Lex Luthor from the back and a really good sound alike to redub some dialogue to change the lines to make it more with Lester's vision. I think I caught it this time. Because this was being filmed the same time as Superman 1. I think we'll really see the fallout next week with these two directors. And who picked what side? Well then, Arnie, I guess you can give us the plots. Well, in the first film, we saw Kal-El was not the only Kryptonian to leave Krypton right before its destruction. We also saw three Kryptonian criminals led by General Zod banished to the Phantom Zone by Jor-El. Well, they've been trapped in the Phantom Zone container in space, but an explosion in space releases them. And they find themselves in our solar system, superpowered by our yellow sun, and they fly to Earth to rule. They cause havoc, and everyone, including the U.S. president, pins their hopes for salvation on Superman. But he's nowhere to be found. See, while on an undercover report on honeymoon resort ripoffs at Niagara Falls, Lois Lane has figured it out that Clark Kent is Superman. And his secret out, Superman takes Lois to the Fortress of Solitude, and after declarations of love, he converses with the knowledge crystals that tell him the only way to be with a human woman is to become a human man. Thus, Superman is willingly stripped of his powers to live life with Lois as Clark Kent. When Clark realizes being human is overrated as he's beaten up at a burger joint and then sees Zod taking over, he pilgrims back to the wreckage of his Fortress of Solitude and has his powers restored. He battles the three Kryptonians and leads them and escaped criminal Lex Luthor back to his fortress. There, Superman uses Lex to trick the criminals. While Zod thinks Superman is again losing his powers, Superman actually rewired the device, so he is safe while the three criminals lose their powers. And with that, Earth is saved and Superman is back. Lois is emotionally tormented knowing Clark is Superman, but in the Lester cut, one super kiss makes her forget. In the Donner cut, Superman spins back the Earth to undo the wreckage Zod created and make Lois forget, and all is back to normal as credits roll. Question before we get to Superman 2, then. Is there a Superman 1 Donner cut? Is there a cut of the first movie that doesn't have some of the things that he wanted to put in this second one? Yeah, it's the first ten minutes of Superman 2. Like, they redo the whole ending at the beginning of this Donner cut. I see. Okay, so they retcon it. Right, because... In the ending that Superman 1 was supposed to have when Donner was filming 1 and 2 was that Lois was in a car which was getting filled with dirt. Superman just saves her. She never dies. And the missile that Superman sends off into space explodes, releasing the Phantom Zone. Zod yells, I'm free, and starts flying towards Earth. And then it says, see Superman 2. But when they realized they weren't doing number two, they felt they needed Lois to be more active in the climax, so they killed her. (laughs) We 
we need her to do more. Let's crush her. <laughs> and so they're like, well, how do we undo it if we kill her? Well, you know that whole spinning back the earth thing? Let's just use it here. Yeah, that was not only a notorious plot device. Yeah, you can't make me unsee that. I mean, coming into Superman 2, even if you showed me it happening in a different way, I'll never forget Margot Kidder's face as dirt and rocks fall into her open, screaming mouth, and she gurgles her last gasp. I mean, that is a traumatic death scene, and I would not have been able to forget that, no matter how they cut this whole intro again. We still get that here in the Lester cut. It is sort of a greatest hits of what happened the last time. Without Marlon Brando, they make a point of making sure that he's not there at the trial for the Kryptonian criminals, and he's not the one that puts the baby in the little starship to fly to Earth. Some very careful editing there. Very careful, but you know what? I accept that a whole lot more than I think I ever would with them saying that the turn the world thing didn't happen. I mean, that's notorious. We just wouldn't have not remembered that, even if there wasn't such a thing as home video for us to have recently have seen that last movie going into this one. Well, what you have to understand is this Donner cut pretty much exists in a parallel universe where Superman didn't turn the world backwards. Otherwise, he turns the world backwards at the end of two movies. So. Well, you say if the first movie had come out, you wouldn't have been able to see this Donner cut. Well, yeah, Donner has said there was stuff he would have had to have filmed differently because of how the first film came out if they had retained him for the second one. But the cut that we see, this Donner cut, is the cut Donner envisioned when both movies were being filmed simultaneously before the changes were made to the first one. Okay, and so let me understand. In this version... We do see a nuke fly up and shatter that pane of glass, and Zod does say, I'm free. We get that shot? Yep. Correct. All pre-opening credits, you get the whole alternate ending, if you will, for Superman 1. Why does the nuke go into space? Superman did that in the first one. The New Jersey nuke was taken to space. Oh, yes, it was, wasn't it? I always forget about that New Jersey nuke, much like I forget about New Jersey. (laughs) Well, it sounds like I would like that better. Coming back, I'm willing to bet that all of this happening at the Eiffel Tower was 100% Lester here. That this was nothing that Donner had shot when we have Lois hanging off the elevator of the Eiffel Tower trying to stop terrorists for unknown reasons, wanting to blow up Paris and get some money or something. Come on, as Perry White said, after Clark says that's terrible, that's why they're called terrorists. (laughs) Here's the funniest thing about this Paris scene. Donner, for all the work he did, was offered a co-directing credit for Superman 2 when it came out. And he goes, well, let me see what I'd be putting my name on. He got as far as Paris, stood up, walked out, and said, no way. (laughs) It's not that bad, but I can say that it played better in childhood than it does now. There is funny stuff here. I kind of like the introductory scene where Clark walks in the office and everyone's too busy to notice him. And he claims that he didn't know what was going on because he was home reading Dickens. I mean, he's still funny. I still think Reeve is good and the setup is funny. But the actual fight here, yeah, I think I would have preferred it tied into Lex Luthor's plan than some anonymous terrorist that there's no point to them. They're never even brought to justice. They are clearly just a plot point to get some kind of explosion out into space. And to do what should have happened. Yeah, the last movie. I do like that we get some kind of Superman type thing at the beginning here. This is the sequel. We've done the origin. Let's get to the action right away. I'm glad that we get to see him fly relatively quickly in this film. We get to see him, you know, 
throw a big elevator into space. We do get some of that Superman stuff, but yeah, watching this now, it just lags. I'm like, okay, I guess we got to get a nuke into space so we could free Zod and his peeps, but it's not quite as satisfying as an adult watching this. Yeah, 11 minutes and he's ripping open his shirt. I am impressed with how expedient we get to what I loved as a kid. And I will say, I don't think Lester's instincts were wrong to start with action, because there's large portions of this movie where there is no Superman. He just doesn't exist. So we want some Superman action before the end. I understand the concept of delayed gratification. They did that in the first movie. We have those long two acts before Superman even gets to Metropolis. But starting off with an action scene, I think is a good instinct to get the audience really happy, get them re-familiarized with Superman. And yeah, as you said, Stuart, a day when there isn't video where they can't have just watched the first one before going in to see the second one. But this scene and having Lois, I don't know why she's climbing underneath an elevator. Her purse gets caught. It's slapstick. These terrorists, they're speaking English, they're French, they are nuking the Eiffel Tower. I'm confused, and it's not exciting. I'm happy to see Reeve back, I'm happy to see Kidder back, but this scene, it only excites because Superman is back and he's flying on the goodwill of part one. Yeah, and I I think that's good enough. I mean, I want to say that although I don't think the scene is very great, I like the expediency. I like the chemistry. It's funny when he does actually rescue Lois. You know, they have some bizarre thing where the bomb will only go off if it's disconnected from this other timer device. And the cops blow the elevator thinking that they're going to get the bomb, not realizing they've just started it up. I mean, all of this crazy Keystone Cops kind of version of terrorism here. But in the middle of all this, I like Kidder. I like that she's trying to keep herself calm by spelling Pulitzer and Nobel Prize. I like when he grabs the elevator and says, is this your floor? I mean, all of this stuff, it is reminding me that I like Lois and Superman together. It works in that way, too. And since a big part of this movie is going to be this love story, it was wise to introduce her into this scenario, however improbable it is that she booked a Concord and beat Superman to the Eiffel Tower. So let's look at the alternate opening then. The alternate opening, Donner's vision, there was no Paris at all. There were no terrorists. What it was, was Lois starts the movie by figuring out Clark Kent is Superman by literally doodling on a newspaper and drawing a suit and glasses on Superman from the first film. Huh. It's the next day from the first film. The headlines are all about how Superman stopped the nuke. And she's so convinced that Clark is Superman, she jumps out like the 30th story window of the Daily Planet, knowing Clark will reveal himself and save her. Yeah, all that stuff we're going to get in Niagara later, you get right at the beginning of the film. And you know what? Being familiar with Superman comics, especially the Silver Age stuff, the 50s and 60s stuff, I like this. This seems very familiar from those comics. I like how Clark, you know, not wanting to reveal himself, uses his super speed to run down there and kind of uses his powerful breath to kind of make her not fall so quickly and his laser vision brings out an awning for her to bounce off of and then he runs back upstairs i actually kind of like how it plays out here yeah it sounds like virtually yeah the same thing as what they do in act two of the lester cut so i like the instincts it makes me really wonder well what are they going to do for the middle of this movie if donner is that quick with getting to the central conflict for superman and lois lane which is that she knows who he is and he can't run. Or do they let this go for a while? Is this a game that they play many, many times that she keeps thinking it's him? 
In the Lester cut, the cut I'm assuming everybody knows, when she jumps off in Niagara, he secretly uses his powers to cut down a branch and save her. Well, in the Donner cut, instead of jumping in Niagara Falls, she jumps out the window, and Clark uses his powers also surreptitiously just to keep her aloft with his super breath so she doesn't die. And she thinks she's the most incredibly lucky person ever. And since Clark's standing there dumbfounded at the window, obviously she was mistaken. And they continue until they get to Niagara Falls and she figures it out again. Okay, so they do do Niagara Falls in both cuts of the movie. It's a lot shorter in the Donner cut. They do go there to break up this honeymoon racket, as they call it. But it does play out very differently. They cut out a lot of the slapstick with the bellboy and and, and a lot of those scenes, which I kind of liked. Okay, well, at least I'm getting a vibe for it. Donner wants to get to it. He gets to the conflict early in his cut, whereas the Lester one, it's really an act two thing. And for this first half, it's much more about Zod, I feel like. Or at least maybe that's just where I'm focused on, that we see these three freed, and they're going to crash Earth. They land on the moon first. All Donner stuff, all original stuff, all stuff I really like. I remember being a kid, and I'd seen video of the space landing. I thought this was really shot on the moon. (laughs) Now I think the moon landing was just shot in Hollywood, but I digress. Yeah, and the Russians and the U.S. are working together. This was very forward-thinking for 1980. Space travel had just become so passe, the technicians down at NASA weren't even giving it any attention until it goes wrong here. It's kind of a scary scene. We needed to understand that these villains were bad. We'd really never seen them do anything bad before. In this new version, they kind of do a retcon where they kill one stormtrooper or something. Who is not the same as the Jiffy Pop stormtrooper that was in the (laughs) extended original cut, I want to add. I do love their total insurrection is breaking a red crystal. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I think my point is that the council sucked and I supported any insurrection and really didn't have a reason to dislike them other than Marlon Brando told me to. And he's not always so lucid. But now I get it. In this scene, even now, playing as an adult, it's scary. When we see Ursa corner the geologist and she goes for the badge. You know, I like this becomes a character trait for her. She keeps ripping off insignias and badges and emblems off men's epilops. And it's just a funny character trait. But it's really scary the way she takes this guy out. Oh, yeah, I was scared of this when I was a kid that the way his suit blows up after, you know, the air starts coming in and he kind of just floats off. Later, we get the landing shuttle that gets crushed by Nom. Like, this was kind of terrifying stuff for me as a kid. And to me, Nom was the big one. The fact that he takes an entire landing shuttle and just crushes it. I mean, yes, each of these three get one kill on the moon. It's convenient there's three people and three villains. But... Nam being so strong, taking that thing down is amazing. Making me wonder, when you're super powered, are there still levels of strength? Is there still somebody stronger than somebody else? Right. Do you need to work out when you're both from Krypton? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a good point. But I do think something's genetically in the cards for him. He's just a bigger dude. This guy always reminded me of Jaws from the Bond series. It's not the same actor. It's not Richard Keel. He does look like him to me. Without the silver teeth. I don't know that he has the look, but, I mean, not speaking is a big part of it. Being huge and strong and silent, it's that same kind of vibe. And let's not forget that the executive producer of these films, Tom Mankiewicz, worked on a lot of Bond films in that era. Yeah, it doesn't happen a lot in superhero movies, but I really feel like they do as excellent a job establishing the villain here 
as they did with establishing the hero in the first one. I didn't really need any more with these trio to know that this was going to be a true threat and a true challenge as they fly to the planet Houston. <laughs> I love yeah. that. I have, I've always loved that. Every time I go to Texas, Jacob, you'd probably just kick me in the nuts if I ever visited you because I make all kinds of jokes about Planet Houston. I love the fact that when they finally get to Houston, they don't even go to the one in Texas. It's what, Idaho? <laughs> yeah, it's some small town in Idaho. Boy, did they get it wrong. And you know, I've got to say, they make these villains do a lot of ridiculous things as they make their journey here. They make them look stupid by putting them in slapstick funny scenarios. But I never think that these people are stupid. It's impressive to the work of the three actors, most centrally Terrence Stamp, but all three of them, that even as they're lampooning and yucking it up, they don't wink at the audience. They don't show us that they're joking with us. And I think that's effective because we never stop fearing them. Yeah, I like how much personality each individual character has. Ursa, Zod, Nam. They're not just three bad guys. They each have their own traits. You know, Nam's the big silent guy. He's, you know, trying to make his heat vision work and it won't quite come out. And he's tries to impress Zod all the time. Ursa, she is the femme fatale. I, like you said, Stuart, I love how she's just ripping off everyone's badges and putting them on her. She's always challenging the men now that she has super strength. But Terrence Stamp, dude, this guy has like some crazy lines. Like he's complimenting a police siren because it reminds him of the red son of Krypton. <laughs> like it's funny, but the way he delivers his lines and then there's other times, you know, every time Ursa goes to like challenge some man, he kind of just rolls his eyes and sighs. Like I just love how casual he is about everything. He's like, yep, I'm going to rule these people. And you know, they are ants to me. I love Stamp's performance here. I agree completely. I am a Terrence Stamp fan and it boils down to this role. I'll go and see Priscilla Queen of the Desert because it has Zod. I'll be excited when I see him in Yes Man. I mean, this guy has presence, and it comes down for me so much to this movie. And yeah, I like how the three of them are distinct. I will say, watching it this time, I was not as impressed with Nam's little puppy dog qualities that were not present in the Donner cut. A lot of those humor things are taken out. Donner tries to play that down, whereas Lester, of course, I think that's his thing. We'll talk about it next week. He likes the slapstick. I like it, too. I actually think it's effective here. No, I didn't see the Donner version. Obviously, it's playing to children, the big guy that can't do the things that the other two can that are smaller and punier. It's comedy, and it's broad comedy, but it still works for me now. But I'm going to stand by this. Terrence Stamp delivers the best villain performance I've ever seen in a superhero movie. I mean, he is that good here. It's unfair, you know, obviously Heath Ledger, incredible, deserved his Oscar, and all of that. He was helped out immeasurably that he was also in the best written, most tightly constructed superhero movie ever made. But as far as performance, taking what was given to him and turning it into gold, I mean, this man spends gold out of what could have easily been a flimsy nothing of a part. His Zod, I'd bow down to it. It truly is an incredible creation here. And I know Zod's in the new movie. I love Michael Shannon, but he's got his work cut out for him if he thinks he can go toe-to-toe with Terrence. And I think what says a lot about Stamp's performance here is Zod, how iconic he made him. At this point in the comics, Nam and Ursa, they did not exist in comics. Only Zod did. He appeared in the 60s, General Zod. 
But at this point in the DC universe, they had really retconned everything and they had made it so Superman truly was the only Krypton. And because of this film, like Zod was so popular that they started having all these parallel universe stories because they didn't want to have another Krypton alive. But hey, we could bring one from another parallel Earth. So we had like six different versions of Zod. And I think it all goes back to how powerful this performance is. Like you had to bring this guy into the comics. He's remarkable. You don't want to see him go. I wish he were in the sequels, quite frankly. I know that he has to be vanquished in order to really get the full thrust of it. And we already have a reoccurring villain. He's also here in this first half hour. And if Gene Hackman weren't as good as he is in the role, I'd say, eh, cut Lex Luthor out of this movie. We don't really need him. But I do love Hackman, and I do love his scenes here when he's busting out of prison. Yeah, they do cut his two henchmen out. Yeah, Beatty kind of gets the shaft here. Miss Tessmacher is back. I guess she doesn't hold a grudge for that cut scene of being fed to the babies. <laughs> but... I agree with you, Stuart. I think that because I know what I know about Hackman being a big star and they signed him for the two movies and filmed all his scenes first, they were riding on the wave of Hackman and Brando giving this film legitimacy. And after the first one, they probably, if they would have had to pay Hackman, they probably wouldn't have had Hackman in this movie at all either. They just would have refilmed everything around him. I like him here. He gets some great lines. Later on, he makes a reference to an affinity for beachfront property that as a kid I never caught as a reference to his part one plot. I love it. But he is extraneous. He's here because we like him. He's not here because he needs to be. And I think they let him have his real hair this time. I mean, part of his character trait is that it'd be a different wig for each occasion. But here, I think he actually said, no more wigs. I'm using my natural hair. No bald cap. No, it was the same shoot. It was a bunch of wigs. I think this might be his real hair. I think that the other was the was a bald cap, right? He never shaved his head for the part. He never shaved his head. When he was bald, it was a bald cap. But they did change his wigs a lot. And I noticed his hair changed a few times here after he escapes prison where he's still wearing that bald cap. It's the classic Lex look. You gotta show him bald. I mean, I think that's what tells you he's evil, right? And I do like their little prison escape. The hologram as a kid. Hey, R2-D2 had holograms. Why can't Lex Luthor build one in a prison? And Beatty's little bit of physical comedy with the ladder, it's well done. It's not exactly smart, but it was Donner stuff because Hackman was there. That tells you even Donner was giving it a sense of humor. Yeah, kind of crazy that your plan to break out of prison is to get in a hot air balloon. Like, there's guards <laughs> with guns. They could just shoot that. Yeah. It's not the fastest getaway. Yeah, there's no reason to think that you could get away. Even if you escape the initial guards, we can see you. Like, there's no, like, cover of night there. I mean, we can find a hot air balloon with sonar or what have you and whatever. You know, I shouldn't like this, but I do. It is not deserving of praise, but the actors pull it off. Donner has the right, like, touch to this. It's difficult to praise Lester's work from Donner, but I think I can see a difference. I can at least identify scenes that I really respond to, and I think that he treated this right. I think that the escape to the Fortress of Solitude we buy it because of the way that it's presented here. Okay, there's a magical black box that he invented because he's a super smart guy, and he's going to be able to track where Superman went, and he's going to wind up with the Fortress of Solitude. And that ties in nicely with the Lois plot, because she's also finding out about his identity. So it's also kind of scary that the main villain is at the same time, too. It's also kind of crazy that Superman doesn't have a door to the Fortress <laughs> of Solitude. I guess, who would go up there? Now, I do like in the Donner cut that they do kind of address that. Like, they show Miss Tessmacher and Lex 
trying to get in there, and there were these steep hallways because Superman could just fly. But, yeah, get a security system, dude. I think the security system is called being at the North Pole. I don't think that you got too many targets of opportunity. And what's he got you on a jack? There's no TVs. Magic crystals. We'll we'll get to it in Superman Returns. (laughs) I always wanted those crystals. I don't know what I would have done with it. I don't know if I was wishing I was some hippie or something. But as a kid, I thought the fact that he had a bunch of crystal technology, that green one in particular, oh yeah, I wanted it. And you'd be all up on your Joyce Kilmer then. (laughs) Here's the crazy thing, Stuart. Donner Cut, you get Brando reading that poem. (laughs) Every crystal is Brando. In this one, they replaced it with the mom because the mom worked cheap. And so all of those scenes were refilmed. But Hackman had one line. He's reading a poem. So they brought in like a bald Hare Krishna. Yeah, let me understand this one more time. They have the footage and they choose not to use it because it might jeopardize Lester's ability to call himself director or because they want to punish Brando, or both. Brando sues them because he is entitled to a percentage of profits on one that he says he's not being paid. Their retaliation is, well, we won't use the footage we filmed of him for two into because then he'll say we owe him money for that also. Yeah, they even cut him out at the very beginning where they replay the trial. Like, he is excised from this film. Yeah, he is not shown because they didn't want to pay the man for the second movie. They didn't even want to pay him for the first one, and that's why he was suing. So it's not a retaliation. It's a lawsuit. There were injunctions, and they said, well, if we use it, then we're going to be showing that we should pay more, and so we're just not going to give him the money. We're not going to use him, so we're going to refilm everything without Brando. And I'm going to say that is a mistake. I liked Brando in the first one. I'm not a huge Brando guy. I never really got him. I like the Godfather films, but Brando himself, I mean, The Freshman with Matthew Broderick is my second go-to after The Godfather. He impressed the shit out of me in Superman 1, though. He's very good in Superman 2. Superman 2, I'm gonna say, whichever cut I prefer, Superman 2 would be better with him in it. Yeah, it seems to me like you're really spiting yourself to throw the star away just because of these kind of personal disagreements. I mean, that's too bad. It really does make me want to seek out that Donner version. But Stuart, what did you just say? Producers are there to be cheap. And what did you say earlier? Brando wasn't needed, so it sounds like you're really siding with the Salkins. Yeah, I am until I see these scenes with the bald guy. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's actually kind of nice that they give a little bit more to do for Superman's mother. I mean, she kind of got the short shrift because the higher paid actor was standing right next to her. But I guess I write it in my mind that they consult with her because he's asking opinions about love and that she would know more and be more in touch with her emotions. That's the way that it kind of plays with me. But yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing Brando's take on it and deciding which is the better. What's the verdict with you guys? Brando, he brings a certain amount of gravitas with him, especially as Jor-El is basically God, as we discussed last week. I'm going with them until we get to a certain scene where he loses me, when we get to that scene talking about love and giving up your powers. It's written very differently. We'll get there. Early on, though, it's Marlon Brando. So, yeah, it it does come off better. Yeah, I'm not going to say which cut I like better yet, but I'll say Brando beats the mom and the Hare Krishna. 
Okay. Yeah, that's all I'm asking at this point. And they're not so problematic for me that it's ruining the movie. If you got it, use it. I guess that's my attitude. I'm like, if that were in the arsenal, you just suck it up and you put it out there. But I Unless guess- it's going to cost you tons of money. <laughs> I get the impression it would have cost just as much as if they needed him to come and film brand new. So they have it, but it's not like they own it. Maybe they should have just paid him. I mean, that's where you'd like suck it up and say, okay, we'll do what we said we would. Or I don't know, maybe use him in another movie, which they will do, by the way. They're behind that Christopher Columbus movie with Tom Selleck that would get made about a decade later. It's the one that Ridley Scott didn't make. I think Brando played Plymouth Rock. I'm not sure. (laughs) Well, I will tell you, Stuart, you've seen this Brando footage because the whole reason the Donner Cut was made available is because Singer wanted this footage for Superman Returns. And so Warner Brothers went to the estate of Brando and said, all right, let's figure out what's owed to whom. And now Warner owns all the footage and was able to use it in Singer's movie. And that gave them also the rights to recreate what Donner would have done here. As good as he is with Jor-El, again, I don't think he was needed to sell tickets by this point. Maybe with Superman 1, people are unsure about it. It's the first time you're really doing this big superhero comic book character in a somewhat serious sense. You want some big actors to sell that idea. Here, we bought it. We saw that first when we bought it. We don't need him now. I think you're right. And case in point, his star was diminishing. He did make a movie this same year called The Formula. It's a completely dreadful film, and nobody saw it. Brando or not. What I find funniest about the Donner cut, we get Lex and Miss Tessmacher here in the Fortress of Solitude, basically so they could find out about Zod and company, right? That's the only thing they achieve here. Like, they don't steal any cool Superman stuff. I don't know if he has any possessions in there besides a cool silver sex hammock. It's very lucky that of all the crystals, they put in the poem and then immediately the one with Zod, who happens to be coming to Earth. Just really lucky that they didn't get the one about the 18 other galaxies. And it's all theoretical. I love the mom, the version that I saw. It's the mom being like, you never know. There just might be a nuclear explosion in space that might free them. Space is known for nuclear explosions. <laughs> I mean, that does happen a lot. All the time. Galaxies are born. Yes. I'm, yes. I'm going to just put it out there. A supernova might also have opened the Phantom Zone. Yeah, a comet. There's lots of things that could have happened. Are these people dead? I remember some dialogue being given last movie about how we'll always be there. And God knows he talked on endlessly that you'd never miss him in that space ride to Earth. But my sense is that their essence kind of lives in here. It's not just pre-recorded messages. This isn't play the videotape. This is some element of who they are as leaders and mentors crystallized and responding to things that are being said and happening. I mean, they know stuff here. And I feel like a part of them, yeah, is living on in this Fortress of Solitude. I mean, this is like a big AI computer. They're holograms. They know when you're asking a question. They don't know who's asking because Lex at this point is asking Superman's mom questions and she's answering them like it's her son. Sometimes they don't even know if you're asking a question because somebody says, that's the question I wish you wouldn't have asked. And Lex is like, what I say? They anticipate what their son will ask. They're very efficient for moving the plot along, AI devices. But no, Stuart, you say, is there an essence of them? I think we'll see that later in both cuts, that these maybe aren't just holograms. Maybe there's something more to them. No, I take it as this. They are holograms, but very sophisticated AI. They're holodeck level holograms, but 
the emotional attachment they have is it is an embodiment of the knowledge they had before they died. They're dead, but this is just their way of living on as like force ghosts. It's their souls. I mean, I'm getting back to sort of that Christian sort of element that hangs over the series. Their souls are here, right? Only, I think, in Kal-El's eyes. I think to Kal-El, this is his only way of knowing his parents. And so, to him, they have real meaning here. But, in the end, looking at it, looking at how these scenes are played, I don't think there's anything organic about them. I think they are well-constructed computer programs that act as the characters on who they are based would have acted and know what the characters on who they were based would have known. But we'll see later again, his mom, this hologram steps out of the crystal in like ages. Like there's something weird about that. Yeah, but I blame Lester for that. <laughs> well, no, because Donner goes even further with what he does with Jor-El. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but I'm going to stick with my conception of it. I really feel like Brando and all of his knowledge is here, and it's more than just a sentient computer remembering who he was. I get a sense of it being, you know, he stuck his soul in a crystal. That's really how I take it. Except that after his son left, we still see him on the planet dying. I mean... Well, it's his soul. Yeah, the most important part of him went with Christopher Reeve. What I find the most humorous, for all the crap Lester gets for being the one that brought the jokes to Superman... The daughter cut ends this scene with a toilet joke. Like, Miss Tessmacher, we see it in the Lester cut. She's talking about how she has to go to the bathroom. It's been two days. Here she finds Superman's toilet, or at least what she thinks is his toilet. That ends the scene, like, flushing Superman's toilet. It's just weird, because here you're finding out Lex now knows about these three bad guys, and he's going to go and find them, and it's like, flush. <laughs> okay. It's just, it would feel more in line with the Lester cut. Hmm. Well, I wasn't missing that scene, I can tell you that. Of all the things I've wondered about Superman and how he functions, didn't need to know about that. Yes, Miss Tessmacher, because we will never see her again for the rest of the movie. She goes out with the toilet joke, which is more than she does in the Lester cut, I guess. You know, we understand why Otis is not along this time. He was too fat to make the balloon. But she, they're heading back on a snowmobile, and I caught it. This is an overdub. This is a Gene Hackman sound-alike. I knew it wasn't Hackman watching it this time. Not before. In childhood, I bought the illusion. But yeah, this is the way that this pairing goes out. For the rest of the movie, Lex is acting alone. And I guess that's all it needs to be. Yeah, I will say, in the Donner cut also, last movie we talked about were they lovers. The Donner cut makes it very explicit. There's a lot more Lex Tessmacher in the Donner cut. And when... Lex is talking about going north. It's really short in the Lester cut. In the Donner cut, he's like, I was thinking about you while I was in prison, Tessmacher, and going someplace with you. And she's like, we're in a bikini and, like, sexy thoughts. And he's like, no, in a parka. We're going to the North Pole. And mm. it really plays up that they had some kind of relationship, but he's far more focused on business than on love. Yeah, that's always been my take with Lex, is that if this is some kind of romantic relationship, he's just not big on romance, that he lives inside his head and his dastardly plans and has her in reserve to use her feminine wiles where he might need them to ensnare. But he doesn't need her for the plot that he's going to have. In fact, he doesn't really seem to have a plot. He knows where Superman lives, and at this point, he doesn't know that there are three people that can take Superman, but he's going to pocket that knowledge and give it to whoever he thinks might take soups in a fight. And they're here by this point. I mean, we do get to see them 
land and there's a little bit more Christian imagery there. They're walking on water as they get to planet Houston. I do love Zod is like, he lands in this water and he's like, this is a very strange surface. You know, that's what he assumes. I guess they live on an ice planet. They've never seen water before. Exactly. And you know, this was the stuff that I thought the Marvel movie Thor really got into trouble when they had Chris Hemsworth walk into a pet shop saying, bring me my steed. I mean, I was groaning, rolling my eyes. I didn't think any of that worked, but I really like this stuff. I really like this fish out of water comedy as they battled their way into taking over America and the world, I suppose. I really think what's surprising to me coming back now is that I like both major story strands of Act 2. Act 2 is about Superman renouncing his powers and about other people taking control of the Earth. And I think both of them are very gripping in very different ways. I want to know what's happening in both storylines equally. One of the things that goes on in the comics whenever you do have Kryptonians come to Earth is they're always assholes. Like, they're always the opposite <laughs> of Superman. They're the cold scientist, and they look down on these people and, like, experiments. And what I love here is the symmetry. Like, they land in this small town. Like, Superman landed in Smallville, and you see Superman, he wants to get revenge as a teenager on these football players, but he doesn't. Here, they go into this town, and they just blow it up. I do like that symmetry with one and seeing how these Kryptonians, though their origins on Earth are similar, they react very differently. I'm more interested in the Zod stuff, honestly, than the Clark stuff. Although, again, having seen the two cuts, I really like the Zod stuff when Zod is taking over. When Zod and the others are discovering their powers and are using those to their benefit. I could do without some of the humor of the buffoons around them. I think we get that sheriff from Live and Let Die back, don't we here? Yes, I couldn't believe it, but yes, you said the guy worked in Bond films, I guess he felt like he could appropriate that Rube Sheriff that was, yeah, in Golden Gun and Live and Let Die, and now I guess this is a crossover. We have a Bond crossover happening here with, yeah, the <laughs> sheriff trying to run these circus people out of town and finding out where he gets them. I'm pretty sure that even though Mankiewicz worked on Bond, this is more of a coincidence of filming in England and things, because... When Donner was booted, Mankiewicz left with him. Very loyal to Donner. And this stuff, this is Lester stuff. This is Lester humor with the rubes, and they have a wide selection. I'll eat the fish. They cut a lot of this stuff out of the Donner cut. I like this stuff. I like the arm wrestling scene and how Zod just kind of rolls his eyes when Ursa's bullying these men around. Is there some broad comedy and stereotyping here? Yes, but I like it more in the Lester cut. I like seeing this happen. I like seeing them take over this town than the quick cut with Donner, where all of a sudden the news is there and the army's there. The farce is never on their face. I never feel like because they're in funny bits, it demeans them as scary characters. And so that's why I'm going with it. And I will say, I think it's the best screen performance of J.W. Peppa's career. I will say that Ursa and Zod escape unscathed. Non- when he starts cradling the police light like a baby, ew, that was cut from the Donner cut, and wisely, wisely so. Ursa arm wrestling has always been one of my favorite scenes, even when I was a little kid. When I was a little kid, I think I liked it just because it was anachronistic that this little woman could beat that big burly guy in arm wrestling. As an adult, you look at Ursa's outfit, I'd like her to beat me in arm wrestling. Yeah, I'll arm wrestle her just to hold her hand. Yeah. <laughs> 
Tell me if it tickles, babe. Yeah, no, I like all this stuff. I like that we have this threat coming on. But no, I'm going to disagree with you. I love the Clark and Lois stuff. I love throwaway scenes. We're in the office and she's decided to go on an orange juice diet. And, you know, they're drinking to friendship over a little splash of OJ that she's gotten from all these oranges. I think all of this stuff is really good. I mean, it should be about that. We didn't totally get why he would love Lois in the last movie. We get it here. I actually see it happening. I think these two actors are at their best in Superman 2. Oh, disagree. Well, don't watch the Donner cut then. Yeah. This is where the movie lags for me is all this Niagara Falls. I like the little moments here and there, but it goes on so long in the Donner cut. Most of the stuff is tossed out. It's very expedient here. This first hour drags for me and it's because of Lois and Clark. I'm not going to say I dislike the Lois and Clark stuff. I never said I dislike it. What I said was I'm more interested in the Zod stuff. I'd say that's true for both cuts. But I still don't see what he would like about Lois, who's now so flighty that she's on this juice diet but won't do vitamins, going to have to squeeze her own oranges and all that. I'm just not into Lois here. And, man, she looks terrible in the new scenes, doesn't she? Oh, she looks like anorexic or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> I've lost my mind. Not only have I lost my mind, I've lost my comb. And you did lose a teeth. Look <laughs> at her lower right tooth. I saw it. There's a big old gap at one point. I think it's when she gets this slug Ursa, but I saw it. I'm like, ooh, they were already popping out. Oh. Here's the thing. She has admitted that after going to Hollywood and having some success, which I read as Superman, she tried to self-medicate her mental illnesses with cocaine and alcohol. Babe, it shows. Yeah, that's a really sad story. I mean, I believe it to be true. She was around for a big part of the 70s. Superman was her breakthrough, but she did De Palma movies. Black Christmas. Black Christmas, and she had just done Amityville Horror. We may get to that series one day, so we may not be done with Margot Kidder, but she was someone of note. Maybe she wasn't a big star, but yeah, it's really sad that her success probably shielded her from getting the help that she needed. Well, I think in this movie, especially in the newer scenes, I mean, when they're having that fight at the end, there's times when she looks young and healthy, and then the very next cut, she looks sick. And that is pulling me out of this movie. And the whole thing at the beginning, I find their flirtation cute. I still don't see what Clark would see in Lois. I wouldn't get that until Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman on ABC in the 90s. So... No Lois had ever done it for me until Terry Hatcher, but I do like Clark in this. I still think Christopher Reeve brings a lot of presence, and the way he plays Superman and the way he plays Clark Kent as Superman in disguise really works for me. It makes the scenes a lot of fun, and I guess even though I don't know why he loves Lois, I'm empathetic because I like him enough to care about his liking of Lois. I like the fact that she's smart enough to figure it out, too. I mean, it's always been this nagging joke, right? Everyone understands the joke. It's just parting his hair differently and wearing glasses. That's the difference. Like, nobody can tell what's so glaringly obvious to the audience. If she's such a crack-jack reporter, she would be able to figure this out, and she does. We would judge her harshly if she was not able to figure it out. If he fell into the flames of love and came out unscathed, and she wasn't able to draw those conclusions, we would hate her. But we love it because she's come to the conclusion. And I think that they needed to tell the story when they did. I'm glad we're getting it in the second movie. I'm glad we're dealing 
with Lois and Clark here now. What I like about the whole Clark falling into the flames and he's unscathed, and they call it out, they make it obvious, it was a subconscious decision. He wanted to reveal himself to Lois. For whatever reason he loves her, that's how strong his love is, that he's willing to shed his secret identity. Donner Cut played way differently. Ar- Arnie, I, how do you feel about Lois pulling a gun out and shooting Clark? <laughs> yeah, I like it a lot better. Here's what the funniest thing is. What? They look so different <laughs> in this scene. This scene was never actually filmed, but this was one of their test scenes when they were auditioning. And so they pulled out this test footage of them and inserted it in the Donner cut. And in Niagara Falls, Lois says, my problem was I bet my life on it. I'm going to bet yours. Pulls a gun and shoots at Clark. Oh, my God. You know, we like that she's a brassy dame and I almost would buy that. But that's a real stretch. But the gun has blanks. Oh, okay. But Clark admits he's Superman before it's revealed it was a blank. Yeah, Clark says the same thing that you said, Stuart, is if you'd been wrong, you would have just killed Clark Kent. And Lois is like, with a blank? Ah, okay. Well, you're right. I do kind of like that. I got to see this Donner cut. However we fall on the recommends and whichever is better, this does sound like essential viewing. If you're curious about a movie, I felt like I knew really well. I think that they acted that scene very well. Based on that scene, I see why they both got the job. The fact that their costumes changed completely, Clark's glasses are totally different. Even (laughs) I'm like, oh, I think this is test footage. (laughs) But it's a really well done scene. I like it so much better than that stupid fall into the fire because he subconsciously wanted to trip on a bear head. I don't buy it. I just don't like Wicked Lester. I like this scene. Come on. Uh, You may prefer one to the other, but you're telling me you don't like this moment? I'm telling you, I don't like Clark supposedly tripping over a bear head. He is Superman. And they can drop a line over he subconsciously really wanted this to happen all the time, but he is Superman. He is not going to trip over a pink bear head and fall into the fire, and that is his reveal. I do not like the reveal in the Lester cut at all. I don't even take that as necessarily 100% true. He was playing Clark. Clark falls a lot. It was time to do another Pratt fall, change the mood, change the subject. And he just happened to miscalculate where he landed. I mean, Superman does not miscalculate where he lands. Yes, he does. I don't believe that the character is infallible, even if he's impervious to bullets. I mean, he can make judgmental mistakes. Oh, he'll make one in this film. We'll get there. <laughs> Are you talking about their date into the North Pole? <sighs> Yes. So he reveals himself. They go to the North Pole. He like leaves her there so he could go shopping, pick some flowers. There's no TV. There's barely a bathroom. Miss Tussmacher may have clogged it up. (laughs) What's ironic is that Trader Joe's, you can probably buy all of that stuff there now. Like you don't need to go to the Amazon and all the different continents to get the birds of prey and the grocery bag that he got. No, no, no. What's ironic is that Pierre argued with the producers that that scene of him picking flowers had to be filmed in the Caribbean and convinced them you shouldn't spend your money on Brando, but Pierre, Reeve, and a film crew get a week in the Bahamas so he can pick some flowers. Someone wanted a vacation. (laughs) It definitely sounds like that problem could have been solved on a back lot in a day. But hey, if you get a vacation out of it, the man probably deserved it if he was making... (laughs) 
<laughs> Superman the movie. I thought for sure that what happened was they were at Pinewood and said, what's filming next door? A beach scene? Okay, Clark's going to a beach scene. Let's light it. No, that is a location shoot, because I really think they all wanted a vacation. Yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt it. I would have rather had Brando. Yeah, I can agree with that as well, but I like this dynamic. It's fun. It's fun to watch a big guy who's supposedly the most powerful thing on Earth be nervous, be embarrassed, wondering if a girl's going to like him, wondering how to make this work. I think all of this is good stuff here, and it's questions we want to know. It escalates the relationship that began on that patio in the last movie. Okay, if they like each other so much, how are they going to date? How are they going to make this work? And the answer is, yeah, it's kind of a stunner. He has to become mortal if he's going to have a mortal love. I'll tell you, one thing I like a lot better about the Donner cut is they have sex while he's Superman. That's the thing with the Donner cut. Like, they screw before he gets rid of his powers. Like, so I don't know why he... He had to get rid of his powers. At least in the Lester cut, I get, I could make that assumption. Oh, he'll, you know, penetrate right through her or something. Who knows? Yeah, there's been that joke. The super sperm would punch out the back, you know, all that vulgar humor about why Superman can't be with a woman. No human woman could be with Superman. But in the Donner cut, the original shooting script, Superman can make love to a woman. There's also a cut scene that Donner filmed that implies Superman was a virgin. I assume he is a virgin. There's a scene with him and Lois, and he says, I've never done this before. And Lois says, it's okay. The key is just not to rush it. It turns out he's cooking a souffle with heat vision. (laughs) (laughs) But Lester's the one who brought the jokes. (laughs) But yeah, I like the fact that Superman can bang human women. There. Question solved. Geek debate over. But no, in the Lester cut, it's kind of funny because he gives up his powers and we'll talk about the giving up of the powers. But as soon as the powers are given up, he's then immediately walking Lois to the bed. There's no more talk. It's like, I give up my powers. You got to give it up now. It's a really harsh view of monogamy, isn't it? You know, like you're coming out of the swinging seventies and you can fly around and do whatever you want. And now that you found the love of your life, that's it. You're not super anymore. You're just going to suck that all right out of you. It's, I guess, a man's insecurity about what happens when he gets married. I also find it weird that Lois would go for it. Like, her whole deal is she's in love with a guy who could fly. He's just given up that power. She didn't like Clark. Clark was the nerdy guy. Now that's all Superman is. I mean, I think that's what they discover in the scenes that follow. It's actually kind of a nice reveal is that she doesn't love this man. And what she loves she could never actually have. She's in love with a fantasy. Yeah, maybe they could have this discussion beforehand. That's all I'm saying. Talk a little. I wish there would have been a scene later on where Lois does realize that the man she loves was left in a crystal chamber. I never get that from Lois. Lois is always too faithful. Even though he's what without powers, what, for 12 hours, 24 hours? There's never the moment where she thinks that the man she loved is no longer there. Yeah, it's told to her. Later, when they go to the diner and Clark gets beat up, she rushes to his side. She encourages him, and he says something to the effect of, that man's no longer here, Lois. I think that's the moment. We see it in her eyes. She processes it. But you're right. I would have liked a longer moment with her realizing what we can see so evidently. So, Arnie, help me understand the Donner version of this. So they have sex. 
I do like that Lois, like, you know, you always get the scene after the couple has sex, the girl's wearing the guy's oversized shirt, like, Lois is, like, roaming around in Superman's shirt. It's kind of cute. It's kind of hot, actually, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's the best kidder's ever going to look in these films. Yes. But then it goes on to this scene with Kal-El and Jor-El basically fighting, like, Jor-El... Is he just pissed that his son wants to have sex? Because that's how it comes off. Like, if you want to be with a woman, then you have to give up your powers. Like, there doesn't seem to be a logical reason. I didn't catch why he had to give up his powers. I took it as he is here for all of mankind. And he can't use his powers to protect one woman like he did the last movie when he turned back the earth. He could be putting at stake entire countries. If he's going to put one woman ahead of everything else, his judgment is going to be clouded, and so he cannot have the power. It isn't a physical thing of not having the power, although it's never stated. There's the whole thing of, will Superman age normally, or is he also immortal, and Lois will grow old and die while he stays young? But it's primarily a thing of, this is what it will take if you want to settle down with a woman. What Stewart said a minute ago about a paranoid view of marriage, I think that is what is happening here, is if you want to get married, you've got to give up your power because you just can't have it anymore. In the Lester cut, it does come across a lot more like, well, if you want to bang, you can't be this powerful because you might kill her. Jor-El just comes off as kind of a jerk at that point. Like, it's like you're at your friend's house and your friend gets in an argument with his parents and it's really uncomfortable. That's how it feels <laughs> watching the scene. Like, they are just yelling at each other, bickering. It's so docile with the mom. She's like, well, it's your choice, dear. But Brando really goes fire and brimstone. It really is. I mean, as Kal-El is walking towards the chamber, Jor-El is like, no, don't do this. It's your choice, but don't do this. Here's the thing that I really like about it is it is an arc here of a father and a son. The son has never really rebelled. The father said, when you grow up, I want you to take the career of savior. Whoa, 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 whoa. except that he reversed time. But yes, other, other than that, he's never rebelled by disobeying his dad. Right. Well, in this cut, that never happened. True. So he has done what his father said. His father, like many type A fathers, said what career the son will have, what college he's going to go to. He's going to go to space university and take the classes his father wants him to take. From me, by the way, I will be giving you your entire education on tape. He's homeschooled. Oh, God. <laughs> but this is the moment of son rebelling against the parent, where the son is finally like, no, this is what I want. And I love some of the lines that Christopher Reeve is given here, which is, for how long must I do this? How long must I work and why can I not be happy? Why must I sacrifice myself for others? If you're looking for a Jesus metaphor, here's the why have you forsaken me moments. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I can't shake from either one of these Donner movies. And even though I only watched the Lester one, I think it comes through in this cut too. I mean, it truly is about, I want to be mortal to enjoy the pleasures of the flesh that means I can't be more than a man. That means I can't be the savior of man. I can't be a Superman and live as a man. I have to pick between the two. And since, yeah, since Brando said your destiny was to elevate these people, he's going down the wrong path. It's not unlike a movie that would be made five or six years later by Scorsese. 
It's got a little bit of Last Temptation of Christ here. I was just going to call that out. Yeah, we're we're not talking about the biblical Jesus here. We are talking about that Last Temptation of Christ where we see him tempted by the flesh. And in both versions, at least this is what they say, he has to give it up forever. There is no way to get these powers back. In the Donner cut, the taking away of the powers is just a light show. In the Lester cut, this freaked me the bleep out as a six-year-old with the skeleton and the musculature. If you want to scare me when I was six, show me a skeleton, because I knew that was a decomposed body. Seeing Superman's skeleton flipped me out. I don't understand the purpose of this effect. Is this early CGI? It looks like it, at least. I do like the point where the two bodies split, and you see the Superman in his suit slowly fade, and the Superman, you know, in his Clark Kent clothes walk out. I think that's kind of a cool effect. I don't know why we needed to see him stripped down to the DNA level. It was very Incredible Hulk. It's effective. It makes you know that this is painful. Like, if you didn't get the sense that the choice was already emotionally painful, it looks physically painful. I think you needed to hit that home. And you're right. For kids, super scary moment. I am glad that Jarrell programmed this crystal chamber, which should never be used, to give him modern 80s clothing. (laughs) Is that a Clark outfit that he just sort of repurposed without maybe being so buttoned up? It looks like something Clark almost would wear, but he wears it better now. He doesn't have to play quite as geeky. Right. Maybe it's all in the performance. And Perry White's going to be like, Superman's gone from the headlines and Clark's really dapper. (laughs) But meanwhile, Zod and company are taking over the nation, be it in the Donner cut, knocking over the Washington Monument, or in the Lester cut, reforming Mount Rushmore in their own likeness. They go to the president. This was always kind of a big deal. You know, they bust through the White House, which is, I guess proclaiming, I don't know that the president really has the power to do this, but he's the one that's going to give up the entire world. The U.S. (laughs) is the ambassador to everything, and so by making him bow, they have finally conquered everything. And I like the way that this plays. I don't think this guy looks a lot like Carter or Reagan, but (laughs) I I like the actor. I think it works well here. I think the tone could be perilously wrong with all this comedy and romance. We might not buy this moment, but I do. Again, I got to give props to Terrence Stamp. I love when he walks in, you see the eagle seal. Oh, I see you're used to worshiping things that could fly. I love the whole dialogue where they have the decoy that kneels and he's like, no, you're not the real president. The ruler of the world would not bow so quickly. And then the real president steps up and he throws out that there is one person that could stop him. And he's like, who is this imbecile? Like, I love how he delivers his line. He brings the menace here. You're right, Stuart. We've had this comedy. We have this romance. But this is pretty scary stuff. I remember as a kid feeling threatened by Zod at this point when he's taken over the White House. I cannot name a better villain than Zod in a superhero movie, period. He is just the best. He never winks at the camera. You believe his menace. And he's got two badass henchmen backing him up. I do like all of that. I also love in the Donner cut, he actually picks up a gun and just starts shooting just to see what a gun can do. He just blows people away. The Donner cut, far more violent in this scene. Lester tones it down. I like it when they're in the Oval Office and they're just kind of playing with toys and bored. You can see that the novelty is worn off. They're like, huh. I I think Ursa says something. They're like, you're the master of all you survey. Like, trying to make him feel better about it. And thank God, that's when Lex Luthor shows up here. He really does 
inject the movie with a new energy. And I love the fact that he's playing his old tricks of trying to negotiate Australia out of a deal by giving them Superman. And again, that beachfront line. Love the beachfront line. Probably my favorite line of this whole movie. So, Arnie, we see Hackman in these scenes interacting with Ursa and Zod and Nam. Were these originally shot beforehand? All Donner stuff. Because I know he didn't come back to do any pickups, so I guess you said they only had him for a few days, so they had to get all these scenes in there. Mm -hmm. They knew they wanted to have this moment. Donner's impulse is right. This is a great moment. We've already bowed to Zod. He is awesome. And now we need that Lex magic to kind of just make it fun again and just change the tone here. And it does feel like a real betrayal that he would bring him to Lois Lane at the Daily Planet. They had a fight at the diner. And yeah, how does that work? How did they get to the diner? Did they steal a car? (laughs) I'm wondering where the supercar came from and why he doesn't take it back. He has to walk back. He has no superpowers. He's at the North Pole. He's wearing a light coat. And here's the thing. They both walked back to wherever this car was. This had to be multiple days. They're both human now. No food. No water. No coats. (laughs) No coats. Like, yeah, they flew there. They didn't have this idea that they're going to be walking back. Like, Lois should have been breaking up with this guy before they ever got to the diner. Yeah, they needed Miss Tessmacher to mush. (laughs) (laughs) Be that as it may, I think they kind of laugh it off by saying, well, it takes a lot longer when you can't fly. Ha ha ha. It's a way of covering the fact that, yeah, it would take a lot longer and probably (laughs) your life to get there. But whatever. Be that as it may, Lois is put into jeopardy. Things couldn't be worse. And Clark, yeah, makes it back to the Fortress of Solitude. Now, I gotta know. What do they do in the Donner cut to explain this? Because I do feel like this is something that's kind of lazy in the Lester cut. Lois had left the green crystal lying around, and that is the thing that built the Fortress of Solitude, so it can rebuild the console, and he can basically rewrite everything that's happened. Oh, I hate this. Hate it. They make such a big deal. You cannot get your powers back. This is a done deal. Oh, wait, here's a green crystal. Zoom. Got my powers back. Yeah, Donner Cut does it a lot better. Uh, it does it different. It does it a lot better, because my complaint in the end of the last movie is it's too easy for Superman to turn back the planet. There's no cost, right? If you're going to do something that tremendous, there needs to be a cost so you don't do it all the time. Here, when Kal-El returns to the Fortress of Solitude, there's one more crystal, and it's Jor-El. And Jor-El's a smart mofo. Because he's the whole way going, you know, I knew one day you'd do this. And I knew one day you'd do this. He's like, I knew one day you'd come to me because you found the love of a woman. But I'm telling you, don't do this. I don't know if that's smart or just convenient plot writing. (laughs) But then he goes, I knew when you found the love of a woman, you would take your powers away, even though I told you it was forever. And I knew you would then want your powers back. And I'm here for you, my son. And I programmed this in, but this is going to be the end because in giving Clark back his powers, it's going to sap all of the energy out of that fortress. He loses all of the crystal knowledge now. There's a line in the first movie that seems so pompous. And when we watch the first movie, I'm like, the son becomes the father and the father becomes the son is what he says. He's putting all these crystals in, right? I'm like, yeah, whatever. Sounds vaguely intelligent. Here, though, he says it again, and it makes sense. The father is going to kill himself. The What you called the soul is going to die to restore the power to Clark. 
And I see it as the son becomes the father because he has now become a man. The father becomes the son, S-U-N, which is what gives Superman his powers. The Donner cut, it all makes sense. There is a cost for Clark's bad judgment. There is a cost for his rebellion. The cost is the death of his father's spirit. I do like that there is a callback to that line because Singer is going to run with that thing. We'll get there in a few weeks. But I, I do like that. I feel like that really was Donner's intention, setting this up, where you get this sacrifice. Still, I don't know if it's a better solution. Sure, it feels more grandiose. This is where we get back into that discussion. Are these just AI computers? I don't know. Is this the Matrix? And he's rewriting the code in Superman's body. I don't understand how it works. I guess we're just supposed to say he's God. It's mythical. So we're supposed to accept it. And in fact, the power coming back is like the Sistine Chapel. Clark touches Jor-El. It's touching God to get that power. And the reason I say it's better is because it is explained versus I have a crystal. Da 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 da. Again, the crystal presents the same problems as turning the world does. Well, if you can just rebuild it, if you can just retro it, then nothing has consequence. I think I'm really liking choices made in this diner cut, which is not to say that I'm disliking the luster cut. In fact, it sounds like I would want a new cut that maybe splices the best ideas of both ones, because I'd hate to see some of this comedy go. I'm liking it. And some of the comedy is still there. I think there is a built-in solution if they were trying to redo this film, if you could have a third cut or something, we're going to find out that that chamber's still around. He could have potentially zapped the three Kryptonians' powers. We'll see him play a little trick later on. Like, you know, Superman, again, he's so powerful, the joy in Superman isn't seeing him lift things. We know he could do that or use his X-ray vision. Ultimately, at least in the comics, the joy is seeing him outsmart the villains and using his brain and coming up with ideas. Because when you're as strong as he is, when you have the powers that he does, and you can reverse the world, well, who cares? Can you outthink someone? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, Jacob, don't go with that, because that means he would have somehow gotten them to the fortress, and we never would have gotten the best superhero fight in cinematic history. Because I don't know if Zod is the best supervillain in history. I'm, I'm leaning there. But the single best superhero fight in history is Superman versus the Kryptonians in the streets of Metropolis. I cannot think of a better fight. I would agree with you if I was six. <laughs> Watching this now, did they not have the budget for special effects here? Because now I no longer believe four men can fly or three men and a woman. This thing is in slow motion when they're floating there in the air. I'm liking these effects. Come on, it's 1980. What do you want? I'm just saying it's a step down from what we saw last week. Oh, no, I disagree. I'm with Stuart. I think this looks very good for the time. I think that some of it doesn't always play as well as they'd like. I think some of the rear projection doesn't work as well as it should. I think Grand Central Station is not one block from Times Square. It's Metropolis, though. <laughs> yeah, it's not even uh, New York, so you can't judge it by that. But this fight is awesome. They fight in the sky. They fight on the ground. They fight under the ground. I don't like the jokes Lester added in because Donner filmed most of these fight scenes. And then Lester came back in and filmed scenes with a waitress and an ice cream cone and a guy on the phone who won't hang up. Which adds up to about 10 seconds. People make such a big deal out of that stuff. I don't know why. It's so short. The only thing that kind of grates is the guy on the phone keeps talking. But the ice cream thing, the guy on the skates, the singing in the rain with the umbrella... I it, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me, and I think you can't deny the fact that a portion of this audience 
is children. And children are going to like that. Maybe as an adult, it doesn't do a thing for you. But kids love that stuff. Kids love watching a guy on roller skates be blown down the street. You know, or a KFC waitress going to give tips and being blown down the street. Or a Marlboro truck being blown down the street. Or a Coca-Cola sign being blown down the street. Whoa, 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 back up there, Arnie. Marlboro. Superman is advertising cigarettes. This is blatant product placement. I knew what Marlboro was because of Superman 2. This is crazy. This would never fly today. This led to a congressional investigation. Really? Yeah, because of this movie, because they found out it is in legal papers, Marlboro paid $48,000 for Lois Lane to be a Marlboro smoker and for the Marlboro ads here. These producers, they wouldn't pay for Jarrell, but anyone who would pay them got a product placement, Coca-Cola, Marlboro, you name it, and it led to an investigation which would eventually sign the pact that they can no longer advertise in movies for children. Cigarettes, specific, because, of course, there's ads for in all movies. Product placement is with us more today than ever, but, okay, cigarettes, nicotine, all right, I gotcha. Yeah, it's notable. I did notice it here. In the scenes with Lois when she's pulling out of her pack of cigs, and I am noticing it here when he's being blown into the truck full of cigs, it is prominent, as is Coca-Cola and the other things here. But I like it because it gives this world a real feel. I mean, it makes you feel like it's not happening in some comic book land. This could be New York City. It gives it something exciting, a reality to it. And yeah, I'm with you. I like the fight. I think it's a good one. And I love the stalemate of it. Nobody can win. And yeah, again, Terrence Stamp, the Superman is nothing of the sort. I know his weakness. He cares for these humans. I do like this moment. Like, this is a Superman moment. That would be his weakness, is that he cares for people. He's trying to look out for those human casualties. It's also Christopher Reeve's weakness. I have always noted there is a shot that they use in which Christopher Reeve laughs about the fact that they're throwing a bus full of people across the square. You guys catch that? They lift the bus, they're about to throw it, and he goes, no, or something. And they cut away, but a frame too late, and that mofo is grinning. He's grinning. It has always bothered me. It's just a half second, but yeah, he breaks character. Never noticed, and I've seen this movie a lot. It's there, go back. I wonder if it's in the Donner Cut. No, but this is spectacular. For the time, Zod flying into that Coca-Cola sign. I mean, before I knew what product placement was, I just knew that was really cool looking. And all of this, the kicks in the air, the pinning underneath the spire from the Empire State Building. Why does that work? Why, when you can lift up a building, does being pinned under an antenna work? That's what I don't get. There is inconsistent. We see Ursa react to a snake bite earlier in the film. Why? Bullets bounce off of you. There are these inconsistencies throughout that as an adult, I'm catching these and it takes away some of the fun for me. Not me. I'm enjoying it. I mean, you know, they could be surprised about something. Being undefeatable is not the same thing as not being able to be knocked down or to get the wind knocked out of your sails. It's not like Nothing can happen to them. They just were able to withstand it to a degree that no human could. I mean, that's the way I took it. So, yeah, it's all so phony baloney when they think they've killed Superman. I mean, no one buys that moment, right? Where he's thrown into some trucks or something and they're like, oh, he's dead. He's dead. They shouldn't have done that. They should have just gone with what they did, which is that he leaves and everyone presumes he's abandoned Metropolis, that he's a coward. What I like about the he's dead scene, though, 
is it shows that he's getting beaten down. He did get the wind knocked out of him. He's fallible. He's not dead. We all know he's not dead. But he's winded, and that's more than anybody else has ever been able to do to Superman. Yes, because everyone else is human. What I do love about this after he flies off is I like the people rally, and they're like, let's get those guys. They hurt Superman. To me, that is the Superman ideal. You may never have his powers, but he's going to inspire you to do something great. Maybe this was a bit foolhardy trying to go after three Supermen, but I do like that the people get inspired by him and try to go after them, even though they all get blown away in the end. Does one of the guys say, I know some judo? I'm pretty sure one of the guys walking towards Zod is like, come on, guys, I know some judo. There's a lot of like funny ADR lines back in Niagara, like when he saves the kid falling, a lady's like, he's such a nice man. I'm sure he's Jewish. This is a moment from Spider-Man. I didn't remember it, but watching last year when we did the Spider-Man retrospective, that scene where the crowd gangs up and decides to fight for itself, I didn't realize it had already been done before. I thought it was made specifically for that movie, but they just took this from here. I can actually see now a lot of inspiration Raimi applied from these Donner Superman movies into his creation. Yes, you kept quoting this one when we watched Spider-Man 2 where he lost his powers. I mean, come on, revealing your identity to the girl, losing your powers, all that stuff. It goes back to these two Superman films. That's how iconic they are. Right. And Luther negotiates saving his life. In fact, they are going to make him the guy from Australia, what he knows to be Superman's home. And in the Donner cut, he negotiates further and gets Cuba as well. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, he would love that. I, I think that's great. I do love Gene Hackman here. Like I said, this character has almost no function here. But he's fun in every scene. I would hate for him not to be in the movie. I have to think some of this was near the end of Hackman's shooting schedule, though. Because at one point, he just takes on this weird accent. And he's going to talk in an accent for no reason. Really? (laughs) It's like, why are you doing this? (laughs) Yeah, he must have been bored. He was just loopy at the end. He's like, you're going to make me wear a bald cap? I'm going to start just fake accent. (laughs) Now, speaking of accents, I do got to say... They get a lot of mileage out of Zod's being British. You notice that here? If Superman's the all-American superhero, I think they felt like they had to make the villain English, right? That's just something ingrained in us, right? Like, we just still hold some resentment over that whole Pilgrims thing. Yeah, even though they're from a different planet where they should speak a different language. Nope, they're British. Yep. Well, that's part of it. Part of it, honestly, is that the studio filmed this in England, and England said you have to have a certain percentage of your cast English. So they looked at English actors, hence why Nam, Ursa, and Zod are all English. But to me, it works on a more primal level of those old films where the Nazis had British accents and the Allied forces didn't. (laughs) Yeah, we know who the good guys are, right? USA! USA! So if Superman 1's notorious for spinning the world backwards, now we get that moment in Superman 2. Maybe not quite the same feat of strength, but they go back to the Fortress of Solitude and they face off again, and the first one to be taken out is Nom by the Cellophane S. What powers are these? I honestly, when Wikipedia was brand new, I immediately went there. <laughs> it's the first piece of knowledge you want. Yes, the first piece. There's a whole, every piece of knowledge of the world is there. I wanted to know about the illusions of multiplicity and the Cellophane S. Here's the crazy thing with the multiplicity thing. Like, Superman references that he played that as a kid. 
Like, he's like, I was never very good at this at, at school. He didn't reveal his powers. Like, it's crazy. It's like he went to school on Krypton. Like, this was a playground yes. game on Krypton. Maybe Richard Lester never read a comic. Wait, actually, he admitted he didn't. Yeah, that's what he claims. I mean, but I, there's no way he didn't know about Superman. I mean, he's such a multimedia character. It, well, now he is. Well, no, even back then, you had the radio show, you had the serials, you had the TV show. I mean, there's people today that have never read an Iron Man comic, but say they love Iron Man. Like, that is a thing that exists once you have multimedia. It seems to me now we have people who are representing the comic books on set, uh, consultants in some way. When they make a Marvel movie, now we have like Kevin Feige and guys that are just there on set that make sure that knowledge of their property is properly being conveyed in the film. But I guess there was nobody on set back then from DC exhibiting any kind of quality control. They could just literally make up stuff about throwing cellophane S's or whatever they wanted to do. Well, I think some of this was, like I mentioned last time, Warner Brothers was not very involved in the making of these first films. After Superman became a big hit, they became much more closely involved, especially with, like, Superman 3. And yeah, here in Superman 2... But I think some of it was the Donner cut kind of lacked action after Metropolis. You can't beat the fight in Metropolis. When it came here, it went straight to the Neo before Zod, I'm going to lose my powers now kind of thing. They felt like the fight needed to have a bit more action. Again, I understand Lester's impulses. I just disagree with some of his execution. Having the battle continue here is a good idea. Having it continue with cellophane and teleportation... Not a Superman movie. Well, here's the thing, though. You could have easily written at least the cellophane S off. Superman goes back, booby traps the place. He has his battle suit where this is built. Like, it's easy to write off. They don't do any of that. But we see this earlier on. At one point, Zod, like, points his finger and brings a gun towards him. Like, they have teleportation rays or something in this film. Like, it's throughout the film. They play fast and loose with the powers and add what's convenient. I've always felt like Superman can do whatever the scene requires of him, ultimately. I mean, he's going to do something in a bit. I didn't know it was in his repertoire either. I mean, yeah, if they need him to turn back time, he can fly around and turn the rotation of the planet the other way. I mean, they can just do whatever they want. This scene may play silly or not very true to script and comic book character, but I like all of this. Even the silliest moments, I never feel like this movie gets too silly. I'm going to side with Stuart. I like this. I agree with you, Jacob, that line about I did this on the playground. Really, just out of continuity, stupid. The cellophane S, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But I like Lester's instincts. I like the fight, how it goes. I like the fake outs where is it a real Superman? Is it the fake Superman? Yeah, it is not a canonical power. It shouldn't be a canonical power. But I like the scenes here. I like the way that they play it. And I like how... When Zod makes that mistake, it's wrong again, Zod, and that's how Superman gets Zod in the headlock. Yeah, and as they negotiate, obviously they have Lois Lane, that's why they brought her here. They've got the upper hand, he's going to back down. But yeah, I like the fact that Superman wins a playground battle, and then yeah, Jacob, he does outsmart them as well. He did reprogram the system knowing that Lex would betray him. He feeds Lex exactly what he wants those people to think is true so that he can sap them of their powers. And we've complimented Reeve a lot with his acting. I love his line delivery here. Like when he acts shocked that Lex would reveal his plan. 
you snake Luther. It's so obvious that he's playing a role here that he knows he's tricking Lex, but I, I just love the way he delivers those lines. I will say that Lex pisses me off, though, because Zod keeps offering Lex so many things. And then says, all right, we're going to kill humans. Start with Lex. 100% of the time. He's like three different times or four said, kill Luther. And Luther continues to not turn against Zod. He's like, but I'll give you this piece of information and you'll let me live. I like that after this final bit, he goes, Lex Luther, ruler of Australia. You use the machine. Yeah, it's great. Good comedy here. And again... Great, because Stamp isn't playing it for laughs, and yet he's the funniest one here. And this scene, bawling. Bawling as a child. Watching (laughs) Superman stripped of his powers. No, I'm serious. It's painful. Because we know that they can take the powers away. We've already seen it earlier. And we don't see how it's not going to happen now that he's in the chamber. It's the worst thing in the world, is that he's going to have to bow in front of this asshole. Wow, for once I'm not with you. For once as a kid, I just, this didn't impact me. I figure Superman always finds a way out. No, this is a very hard scene. No, for me, I just didn't know. So when he's crushing his hand, I mean, it's such a wonderful turn when he's doing it. He's literally bowing before him and Zod appears to have won. It's the darkest moment. I love the flip. It's such an elation. You know, when everything that happens afterwards, Nan tries to fly and is the first one to fall to his death. Lois gets a punch in. I'm loving all of this stuff. We've really earned this moment and watching these villains go down. It's a very triumphant victory. Yeah, I always love, like, especially as a kid, when Superman starts crushing his hand, like, I would cheer at that point. There's something so great about that reveal. Uh, You get into it. And you guys have praised Stamp all the way through. I'm with you. But here, his gasping whine and his over-the-top facial expression are perfect as he feels pain for the first time. The only thing that bugs me is they never get a chance to beg, because when they're sent to the Phantom Zone, Ursa's voice especially is heard shouting, Forgive me! Forgive me! They regret it once they got punished. Well, because here they straight up get the death penalty. (laughs) Like, they straight up get murdered by Superman and Lois. In the Lester cut, the Donner cut they live. Mm, it doesn't show him living in that cut. You're, you might be thinking of the TV cut, actually. Oh, maybe. Am I thinking of the TV cut where they are taken to prison? I saw so many cuts. <laughs> the Donner cut's even worse because we don't see Lex get out of there and Superman blows up the Fortress of Solitude, presumably on top of the three Kryptonians and Lex. So question, you guys said that earlier in the movie when he got his powers back, it was at the cost of Brando and this fortress. Why is any of this stuff still working then? It was at the cost of Brando to give him his powers back. I think that chamber could still take the powers away, and he somehow rewired it. I mean, I, it's awfully convenient. I mean... Okay, so there's problems even with the Donner logic. Okay, it's not like he had a lockstep, foolproof, rainproof version of how to tell this story. It sounds like his instincts were mostly right, but in all cuts of Superman, you just have to suspend your disbelief and just go with the feelings of it and not so much whether it's logical or not. I would say the Donner cut really falls apart here at the very end. I mean, you've got this really convenient, he rewired it, and Luther gives exposition, he was safe in there while they were being exposed out here. Okay, yeah, thank you, Lex, for explaining it. Now he never says how. But then in the Donner cut, it goes a step further to make sure none of this ever happens again. 
Superman goes from a distance and using his heat vision blows up the Fortress of Solitude. Which I don't get. Like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. He could have just put a door on the place. It would have prevented this whole issue from happening. <laughs> Maybe it's a burial. Like, those people can't ever get out because the fortress's rubble is on top of them. Or maybe it's just significant because Krypton blew up. We needed to have the mini Krypton blow up. Maybe they just didn't want to have to budget this set piece in future films. Maybe. But then they return in both cuts, and Lois has the knowledge of who Clark is and has trouble dealing with that. Now here, no matter which cut, it's a convenient excuse. In the real cut, the theatrical cut, there is the super kiss. This is what I like. I'm not going to say I like the super kiss. What I like about the scene, though, is at the beginning of the film, at the Lester cut, you get this whole thing where Lois is, Clark, you're a real nice guy. Someday you'll find a nice woman. It's just not going to be me. And like Clark feels like he's being talked down to. You get that reverse. Again, I like that kind of reversal that you get here. Now it's Clark. Now that she knows that he's Superman and she can never be with him. He's like, oh, you're real nice, Lois. I know it can never. Like, I like that symmetry in the film. This is a great scene. This is Kidder's best moment as an actress. Maybe ever. She's great in this. She's wrenching. I really feel her pain for this. Because she's too smart to kid herself. And she can't play dumb the way that Clark does. You're right. It's a great scene. Now, the kiss, that is, it's happened in the comics. It has? This isn't with the cellophane S? He has had crazy powers in the comics. The most often cited one is uh, when he shoots a rainbow out of his hand and a tiny Superman comes out to save the day. Like, there has been some crazy (laughs) Superman powers. Okay, is that Superman and the Acid Trip of Doom? Perhaps we'll get that with Zack Snyder's reboot. I wouldn't put it past him. God knows that if he based it on that comic, we'll get it in loving detail. <laughs> but I don't know. The Is this kiss a worse sin than reversing the earth? You know what? I like it better because I like the emotion of the moment. It's still the same cheat. It is still the, oh, he can do whatever and we're just going to scrub everything that happened. But because I love this scene so much and because I want Lois's pain to be relieved so badly i mean watching her in this moment is almost as bad as watching her get squashed in that car in the last one and so that he came up with this solution at least they did it this way it would be too painful to have her go on with the knowledge but the donner cut the donner cut goes a different tact and i think from all of my reading and what i've heard donner say Donner did not want to make a Lucasian special edition of his cuts. He refused to let them create new scenes with computer generated. So what Donner envisioned were a lot of scenes of Zod and company wreaking havoc and destroying the Earth. And in order to A, reverse Lois's knowledge and B, help Earth with the construction costs of rebuilding, Superman turns the Earth back. And the buildings reform themselves, and Lois forgets, and the villains go back in the Phantom Zone. They're alive again and floating in space, waiting for the next nuke. Okay, you blew up half of California. There's no way to fix that with a hammer or nail. You gotta kind of reverse time to fix that. But in two, yeah, he's literally just, he's fixing the Statue of Liberty and the Washington Monument. Like, this is stuff Superman could do super fast on his own and fix. Like, I think it makes even less sense in this cut to put it in at this moment than it did with that first Superman. If you're going to have to reverse time, at least have it be with something that you can't fix with your super speed. I feel like all I needed to see was him putting the top back on the White House. We didn't need a whole cleaning montage. I think the Lester cut is just right in the sense of how much repair I needed to see that happened to the world. I mean, 
we got the fact that they, for a brief amount of time, ran everything. I mean, I didn't get the sense they wanted to destroy everything. They just wanted to own the planet. And the destruction was pre-ownership. It wasn't like, we own this place, now let's have a big bash and trash it. It was to establish their dominance. They trashed it. But yeah. the worst part is in this Donner cut, Superman just looks so nonchalant. He's got a little smile on his face while he's turning the Earth backwards. I don't know if they don't want to use the same footage. It, it, they show, like, the sky moving really fast, and you don't really get a sense of what he's doing. I would have no idea that he's reversing time unless I had seen that first film. Well, there's toothpaste going back in the tube that tells you everything. Yes, but I wouldn't have any idea what he's doing with the Earth like that. He's actually reversed it. They only show him going around the Earth a couple of times. And because he doesn't look angry, it's like, oh, well, let's just fix this by going backwards. In the last movie, yes, it's stupid that he reversed the Earth, but he looked pissed off doing it. It looked like a dire thing that he was doing out of desperation. Here, it's like he's doing it the same way I would make coffee in the morning. Maybe it's the result of Donner not being able to make all the footage, but here, it feels totally unjustified to turn back the Earth. If we're going in this movie, turn back the Earth versus Super Kiss, I vote Super Kiss. Yeah, me yes. too. I agree. I don't ever want Turn Back the Earth, ever. And the most stupid thing is after he turns back the Earth, in the Donner Cut, he goes back to that Alaskan diner and beats up the guy who never would have beaten up Clark Kent because he turned the Earth backwards before that happened. Seems like a cheap shot. It seems below Superman's ethics that he needed to put that bully down. You could make the case that he was unpopular anyway, because he walks in the joint like he knows it, and he probably picks a fight every night of the week. The guy had it coming. But did Superman really need to be the one to dispense it? Thank you, Stuart. This scene bugs the hell out of me. I could get Superman maybe walking up, you know, as Clark Kent, and the guy punches him and maybe breaks his hand, and he leaves it as that. He didn't attack the guy. The guy learned his lesson. He punched him, hurt himself. He laughs and walks off. It makes even less sense. It makes him look like an even bigger dick when this guy has no memory of beating up Clark. <laughs> and this guy just shows up and beats him up. The footage is exactly the same. He has a memory of it, which makes no sense because this is all Donner filmed footage. Donner even cameos in it. So Donner did this, but the guy remembers beating up Clark. And I'm sorry, but as a kid and as an adult, this is a triumphant moment. You don't want this guy who took your hero and put him through plate glass window to get away unscathed. Clark doesn't punch him. Clark doesn't kill him. Clark humiliates him and shoves him down a table with some food on his pants. He throws him into a pinball machine. Yeah, I... Like, that's brutal. That is not brutal. That thing's got glass. Oh, that's come on. Come on. Don't overplay okay, it. Okay, Artie, you go jump in a pinball machine just for fun to see how fun it is. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to get into the scientifics of measuring the threshold of pain versus tilting. I will say <laughs> it just seems below his character. Yes, the audience wants it because we're men. We're savage. We want to see that. But he's a Superman. He has a higher code of ethics. He should be able to walk away from that fight. He should be able to, but we don't want him to, is what I'm saying. And I'm glad he didn't. I like that he didn't. And, hey, he was beaten up as a human. And Donner said in the commentary, maybe he knows from his brief time as, of being human the sweetness of human revenge. But I like that they did it. I think in the Donner cut, they should have left it out because it never really happened. But 
in the Lester cut especially, it's a nice second-to-last button for this movie. The last button, I gotta remember this was 1980. You know, we're just coming out of the Carter years. The presidential election is going on to elect Reagan. To have Superman take the flag to the president and say... I'm not going to leave you again. I think this is one of the things that ushered in the patriotism of the Reagan years. I'm not sure I follow. Why is that? Not that it created it, but it was a sign of the... Morning in America? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, it was a redemptive story. It was that however bad we had fallen, it could be cleaned up. Inspirational. Movies of the 70s, not so inspirational, but Superman was part of... That whole series of movies that created, yeah, that 80s feel-good vibe that we associate with those blockbusters. And which no doubt, as we talked about, Arnie, with The Dark Knight Returns on Books and Nachos, Superman getting, at least by Frank Miller, that reputation of being the super patriot, being controlled by the president, standing up for the American way, which means taking orders from the president. Needless to say, that's a Lester edition, but I definitely have always thought of that scene as a child as a big thing of inspiration when i was seven and eight him going to the president and saying he'll be here that sparked patriotism in me to know superman was on our side but are we on superman's side jacob stewart do you recommend superman 2 either cut jacob it's hard for me to believe that people might think this is better than the first superman film maybe as a kid as a kid i remember this having much more action but there's something about that first film that draws me in. It, it, it's long. It spends time on Krypton and time at high school. And it takes a while to get to Superman, but I never feel it lags. This film, for the first hour, it tries my patience. We get these love stories and these jokes, you know, about honeymoon scandals and Niagara Fall. And I, I just, I want to get to the story. I want to get to Terrence Stamp. I want to get to Ursa. I want to get to Nam. Like that is the best part of Superman 2 are the villains. Yeah. Forget about Lex with his nuclear bomb blowing up the San Andreas Fault, here are some real villains that can stand up to Superman. And I think that is the strength of Superman, too. It's not that you just have great villains, you have great actors playing these villains. that they, they just pull it off so well, you know? And then you still got Reeve doing his great acting. You still got Hackman doing his thing. This film, though, I don't think it's better than the original Superman. I, I think the pacing's off. Going with the Donner cut, because they're able to take away so much of that stuff that slows the first hour down by rewriting it. Oh, we get rid of Paris. We get rid of a lot of the Niagara Falls. I think the pacing's a bit better in the Donner cut, but both cuts have their issues. Stuart, you said it sounds like they should take the best of both of these and put them together. That'd probably be best. I would recommend Superman 2 with either cut, though, with the Donner cut. Or with the Lester cut. I think both are good. I don't think they're as great as Superman the movie. But if you want more of that action film where he's fighting the villains, then you get that here. It's going to take a while to get there, in my opinion. And some of that stuff in New York, man, they're flying awfully slow. Hopefully Snyder bringing back Zod is to, you know, give this a little bit more of a modern aesthetic with this fight. I think this could have been much more exciting. But yeah, I recommend either cut of the film. I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. They are different. If you want more Marlon Brando, check out Donner. But I don't think Lester's cut is this thing to be scorned because of the humor in there. I see that humor in both of them and recommend either cut of the film. Stuart. Superman 2 was, is, and will forever be the best Christopher Reeves Superman movie to me. 
I am delighted to say that I find it just as effective now as I did then, and far superior to the movie I really liked last week. This is one of the best superhero movies I've ever seen. I love Zod. I love the romance. I love Lois this time. I like the comedy. I love that there's stakes. I truly would say that this ranks right up there with the best stuff. I mean, it's not Nolan, and I'm not going to judge it by that. I think Nolan works with a sophistication few big blockbuster movies ever deal with. But looking at the wide swath of superhero movies outside of Nolanverse, this is definitely one of the best. It's better than any Spider-Man movie I can think of, better than any X-Men movie I can think of. Truly an excellent, excellent film, and I love it. So highest of recommends. You're both wrong. (laughs) I think (laughs) Jacob is too harsh on this, and I think Stuart has some rose-tinted goggles of nostalgia. Because... Looking at this movie now, and it's been a long time since I've seen it before this review and really watched it and paid attention to it. I agree. I think this is going to be the best Superman film that we see this whole retrospective. I don't have a whole lot of high hopes that Zack Snyder will finally make a second good film. I think that everything from here is downhill. But Jacob, I see your point about why you would appreciate the first one more, because looking at him as an adult, there is a lot of depth and richness and almost this Shakespearean quality to the first film with its themes of father and son, that especially the Lester cut of the second film, Jettison. The first film feels more emotional and more like a character study. It feels more like a rich universe where you want to go deep and learn more about its characters and its rules and Krypton and all of the mythos that was created there. This movie is far more straightforward. By the same token, this movie has a much better plot, a much better story, a much, much, much better villain. I love Hackman in both of these movies, but Lex Luthor, as portrayed in these films, is no match for Superman. Zod, Ursa, and Nan give him a run for his money. And that is awesome. You don't have, like I called it last time, the burden of the origin story, which kills pacing. It's a great origin story. It's expertly told. It may be the most luscious of origin stories. And it's certainly one of the longest. Most of them try to knock that out in the first act now. But this film is more kinetic. I will say that I'm going to come down slightly on the Donner cut. In my best world would be a fan edit, like Stuart had said, where you take all of the father-son stuff from the Donner cut and then add in the super kiss from the Lester cut as the ending because turning the earth back around seems a little silly for this purpose. But when you add in all of the Jarrell stuff, it takes this movie even to a whole new level that I really appreciate. I recommend both cuts, the Donner cut, slightly more, even though I don't know if I'll ever watch it again, because it really is almost like a fan edit in and of itself with test footage, and I believe I read an analysis, it's 86% Donner footage, you know, it's kind of like getting to levels of purity in my soap now, 99.44 Donner, but I like the footage there better, there's greatness in Superman 2. See both. Just go see both and have a good time with it. Oh, I will. I, you guys have definitely convinced me. I didn't need much prodding, quite frankly. 
I've wanted to see the Donner Cut. I'm going to see it before we get to Man of Steel. I got to see what I'm missing. It sounds really cool. And as for the humor that you commented on, Jacob, it irks me. It does. I understand what you say, Stuart. It's aimed at kids. But I wonder if both of you will be as forgiving next week when we discuss Superman 3. Yeah, I've only seen that one once, and I have a very vivid memory of it. Arnie, it's with you. We went to the theater. (laughs) We'll talk about it next week. Yes! (laughs) And listeners, in the meantime, this Friday, our review of the remake of The Evil Dead will be released to show donors. It is our spring donation drive where we are asking you, the listener, like a PBS pledge drive, to support our show. We have no advertisers. There's no ads at the top of the show before the credits start. There's no product placements in here. We're not all smoking Marlboros and getting paid $46,000 to try to hawk cigarettes to kids. We're paying for the show and the bandwidth out of our own pockets, and we need your support to stay on the air. If you enjoy our Superman retrospective series, if you enjoy any of our retrospective series, and want to hear more retrospective series and movie reviews in the future... We need you to help support our show with a donation. And twice a year, we thank donors by giving special thank you podcasts. This spring, we're really doing a lot of zombie movies, starting with Evil Dead, ending with the biggest zombie movie of all time, World War Z. And in the meantime, for those who donate $25 or more, we're also doing Return of the Living Dead and the 28 Days, 28 Weeks Later duology. For only $10 or more, you get... All four Evil Dead films, the Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness. This Friday, the remake comes out. And then later this summer, you get your fifth podcast, World War Z. Yeah, I mean, we've never offered so many shows at such a donation price. We're really trying to give you everything we can about zombies. I really think that when this is all said and done, we'll really have had our say on Romero last year. And now all of the major zombie franchises he spawned. It's I'm really excited to be doing it. I think it's going to be great fun. I hope you join us. And we will be back next week on Totally Free Tuesdays because Now Playing is and always has been and always will be free. We just do these extra shows as a thank you to supporters. So until next time, up, up, and away! I knew this time would come. We both knew it from the day we found you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. The virtual spirit has no need for thankful approval. Only the certain conviction that what has been done is right. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Superman movie, leading up to this summer's Man of Steel. Again, again! Superman's bad. He was bad. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear reviews of comic book movies such as all the Batman films, Green Lantern, Catwoman, the Marvel Avengers films, and many more. You've come a long way since the old neighborhood. You can also hear our reviews of non-comic-based films, including Star Trek, Predator, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Never thought this thing would go the distance. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts, 
at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now, this is a very special place for me. I wanted you to see it. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Let's go to my place. Maybe I should change this. You can also follow Now Playing at Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Why am I not reading it? The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Superman will be there on Wednesday, all right? The city of Metropolis is generous to a fault. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Don't tell me. He sends a check every week to his sweet gray-haired old mother. Actually, she's silver-haired. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Now come on, lady, hand it over. Say Jim Bones! That's a bad outfit! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties. Do you like pink? Coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. They have a wide selection. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. What more could anyone ask? A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now we're cooking, huh? Now Playing's Superman retrospective series is edited by Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. Your suffering will be short. Mine, forever. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. I do okay what on Black. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures. Superman is the property of DC Comics and Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. The dude of steel. <laughs> Where are you gonna get it? The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Why do you say this to me? When you know I will kill you for it. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Well, I guess I'd better be going too. So I'll be going. Bye. See you later. Well then, Arnie, I guess you can give us the plots. <laughs> I'm just scrolling through my notes, and I, I thought I might be at the plot summary. And the first line I read is, Tessmacher finds a toilet. <laughs> that's what you get in the daughter cut. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> we'll talk that's about not it. how I recall the movie starting. But. Well, no, it's, it's not at the start, but... Well, you know, maybe it does it not work? It works fine, but maybe she clogged it. I don't know, but he has super speed. Couldn't he just fly to Canada when he needs to go? No, I mean, did the comedy bit work? I mean, I don't need oh. to know about the plumbing. <laughs> You're asking <laughs> in the toilet. I don't, yeah, did you pull a chain? Is there a bidet? Because my ass gets really, really dirty. <laughs> She's not even sure it is the toilet, she says.